today we are uh, in Galatians, and we've been in Galatians, so it should be no surprise if you've been here for a while, but today will be our last day in Galatians for the next four weeks. We're going to push pause on Galatians, and the next few weeks we'll be doing Advent-focused messages. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I love this time of year. I love that we get to sing these songs that um, we really don't sing any other time of year, and they're beautiful. They're about the birth of Jesus, about God taking on flesh to come and rescue us. These are just beautiful songs we get to sing. And one of the amazing things about the gospel is it's so simple, yet it's also very straightforward and very blunt. You know, the gospel, our flesh doesn't do well with the gospel. The, the gospel message is, is so simple. You're a sinner. How's that for blunt? That doesn't feel real good. And because you're a sinner, you and I deserve eternal separation from God. Not a feel-good message. But the message is that God himself took on flesh, became a man, was born as a baby, grew up like any other child, and that he came and lived a sinless life, lived the life that none of us could live, that we could be reconciled to God Almighty. Such a beautiful message, so simple, yet there's something in our flesh that just can't handle it. We feel like there's got to be more to it. It can't be that easy. And in Galatians, that's what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with a group of people who heard the simple, blunt, glorious, good news of the gospel. They received it. But then a group of people came behind them and started speaking to their flesh, saying this, hey, if you're really going to be a Christian, if you're really going to trust Christ, you've got to keep the Jewish customs. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the dietary regulations. And they started adding these things that are often referred to as works. And the relationship between faith and works is a relationship that many struggle with. Because here's the thing, our broken, fallen flesh, we just want to earn it. We want to go do it. Our flesh wants to figure out a way to say, I'm good enough. When the reality is you can never stand before God and say, I'm good enough. All we can say is, he did it all. He's good enough. Jesus is my only hope. And that's what Paul is pushing the Galatians into. So today, within our message, um, I've titled it, God sent forth his son, which is from verse four that we'll see today. So even in the midst of this message, we're going to get three reasons out of this passage why God sent forth his son. Now, these aren't the only reasons, but these are three reasons that God sent forth his son. And we're going to be covering 20 verses. So our reading is going to be a little longer today, but let's go ahead and stand for our reading. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Words will be on the screen, or you're welcome to look on your phone or your Bible or however you prefer to follow along. Hear the word of our Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different 
from a slave. Though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has given you the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you, uh, you, uh, you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know um, it, was, it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> God, your word declares that all men are like grass. All our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. May this be the word that's faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be speaking, spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today's message, I've titled it, God Sent Forth His Son. That's what we remember at Advent. And what we're going to see, I'm going to show you three things from this passage. Three reasons. These aren't all the reasons. Some are more important than others. But three reasons that God sent forth his son. The first one we see in these first seven verses. He sent forth his son, hear this, to adopt you as heirs. This is probably the most important point we'll make today. God sent forth his son that you could be adopted as heirs. Now, Paul starts off speaking of what an heir is like. An heir means that they're a child and that they will receive 
the inheritance. So an heir, when the parents pass along, they receive everything from the parents. But when the heir's a child, that heir's not owner of everything. That heir has to wait to be a certain age before they receive the full inheritance. And that's what Paul, he's drawn a comparison between these Old Testament saints that have been trusting in the law and Christ who's come. He's the fulfillment of faith. That Old Testament, you were saved by faith. Christ is the fulfillment of that. And what he says is this. A child, before they're of age, they're like a servant or like a slave that though they own everything, they don't have the rights to those things just yet. Now, there's been studies done of various cultures around the world. And most cultures, at some point in time, developed what we call a rite of passage. What that means is you take a young boy or a boy who's about to be the age of a man, and you take them through something where you say, you have passed from being a boy, now you're taking on the responsibilities of being a man. They have the same thing for, for women. You could travel all over Africa and you would find many cultures that have those things. But in our modern culture, in our modern global culture, so many of those rites of passage are being lost. People don't know. Hey, when do, when do I pass from being a girl to being a woman? When do I pass from being a boy to being a man? When, when do those responsibilities change? And, and Paul is speaking to the people in Galatia, helping them see you were acting like children, and then you became heirs, and you're trying to go back to acting like children. You're going backwards. Though you should be behaving as a mature believer, a mature adult, you should be walking by faith, you're going backwards. Now, in almost every culture I mentioned, they have these. In the cultures Paul's writing to, he's writing to three predominant cultures, Jewish, Greek, and Roman. In the Jewish culture, after a boy's 12th birthday, first Saturday, first Sabbath day after his 12th birthday, they would have a ceremony. It's called bar mitzvah. Now, what bar mitzvah means, the word bar means son, Mitzvah carries the idea of command, and it's saying, you are now the son of the commandment. Here's what the, the dad would say to his son. It's a blessed be thou, O God, who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. So what it is, it's a father saying, hey, I'm giving up responsibility. He now carries his own responsibility before God. And the son would say this, O oh my God and the God of my Father, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of actions toward thee. So it's a, it's a period of life where a young man and uh, women have ba mitzvah, so a, a young woman would take on the responsibilities of the commandments. In the Greek culture, at age 18, which is probably closer to when many of our cultures would start to view a boy as a man or a woman or a young woman as 
a woman. At age 18 in the Greek culture, what they would do is they would cut the boy's hair. They had long hair and they would burn the hair to the god Apollos. And that boy would go into a two-year period of civil service, serving as a, um, uh, in the military or serving somehow in the city. In Rome, they would take their toys and they would take their dolls for girls and they would burn them. And they would say, I'm done with this. Do you remember when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. All of us here who are adults, we may not remember the exact date, but there's a time when we do away with the childish things. There's a season to be a child, and then there's a season to be an adult. And in the Old Testament, God's people were under the law to guard them. It was a guardian to keep sin from destroying them. In the New Testament, Christ is the fulfillment of the faith of the Old Testament. And when he comes, they don't keep the law in the same way. The law is a response to what God has done in their life. The law, uh, and yet they're going back to keeping these customs. So in verse 3 says, In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to elementary principles of this world. That's what children are. They're, they're just trying to figure out how to live. What's this person doing over here? How do I fit in over here? What makes me happy? What's going to satisfy me? Children often haven't learned to sacrifice for others, to lay down their life. They're not walking in maturity. And that's what he's saying here. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And people will debate exactly what he's talking about. In verse 10, he makes an allusion to astrology. So maybe they were into astrology. But most basic is they were into human philosophy and human traditions. Now in verse 4, we get one of the beautiful verses about the incarnation of Christ. So here's what's going on. In the Old Testament, the law guards you. It's not meant to save you. It's meant to show you that you're a sinner that you need a Savior and to keep sin from destroying you. That's what the law did in the Old Testament. They were still saved by faith in the coming Messiah. Now that Messiah has come, your faith is in Him. Look at what he says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, what does that phrase mean? At just the right time, God sent His Son. God had been preparing everything for the day his son would come. As uh, we heard earlier in our Advent reading, 450 years since a prophet had spoken. That's a long time. Nobody had heard in 450 years from a prophet, and now Jesus comes. He enters into a, a world very different from the Old Testament. The Greeks had united the language where the majority of the world spoke Greek and could understand. The Romans had built roads where you could travel quickly. The Romans also had the Pax Romana, which was a forced peace where you could travel freely. No one would do you harm. So we see all this created the fullness of time for Christ to enter. And it says, He was sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Now for a Jewish reader, they would hear that and go back to Genesis chapter 3 and go, God was sending a seed from woman. And this 
phrase, born of woman, carries this idea. He was born only of a woman. All of us here, we're born of man and woman. Takes both. Here, he was born, Christ was born of woman. There was no human father involved. And he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. What he did is he came and he, did, he never sinned. The law which shows us you're a sinner. Christ kept it perfectly. He had no sin to be revealed. And he came to redeem those under the law for this purpose. That you might be receive adoption as sons. That's the key idea here. We're adopted as children. I mentioned this last week. God is creator of all. God is king over all. But he's not father of all. God is only father of those who are adopted into his family. There's no other way to come into the family of God other than to be adopted. You're not born a Christian. You're not born a child of God. John 1.12 says, Yet to those who believed, to those who received him, he gave the right to become a child of God. When you believe him, when you receive him, you become a child of God. And he's speaking of Christ came at the right time that we might be adopted into the household of God. The relationship changes. Look, in verse 6, what does our spirit call God? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That, regardless of how this gets translated in various languages, this is a term of endearment for God. That, that you love God. That he's, he's, some would use the word daddy or papa or dad. It's not like this distant father. No, the relationship, he is your close, near father who loves you. He says, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. We have moved, for those of us who trusted Christ, we moved from being a slave or a servant to being a son. This is what they would often do in, in, in Rome, in, in a house of a wealthy family. If the people had not been able to have any children of their own, they might take a servant and say, that servant will take all my inheritance. That servant is going to become full ownership and be my child. You may remember in the Old Testament the story of Abraham. And God says, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Abraham has no children. Abraham's nearly a hundred, and he's going, God, when I die, my servant Eliezer, he's getting everything. I'm about to treat him like a son. That's how he would adopt you in, with full inheritance and rights. You receive all the blessing of the Father. I was reading about John Wesley this week. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, he was a prominent minister in the 1700s. He graduated from the best schools, was an ordained pastor, had what we call orthodox, correct theology. He did good works. He went and visited prisoners in prison and preached. He took food to the hungry. He gave clothes to children who were in orphanages and living in the slums. He studied his Bible daily. 
He went to church several times a week. He lived on a meager amount so that he could give as much away as possible. He lived an exemplary moral life. He even became a missionary and went to the current day U.S. state of Georgia. It was a colony. He went to Georgia to preach the gospel. But listen to what he said upon returning from his missionary work. I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. Look at all the works this man did. He did more works than anyone probably in this room. He served. He sacrificed. Yet he looked and said, I was never truly converted. He was doing works. He was living not as a child. He was living as a servant. He was living as a slave rather than a child of God. Listen to what he said later reflecting on his pre-conversion condition. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. What's the difference in a servant and a son? A servant could lose their position at any time. A servant works in order to keep their position. A servant works to make the master happy. A servant's always wondering, is the master pleased? Is he happy with how am I doing? How are things going? Is the, is the master going to say I need to leave or is he going to keep me? The servant doesn't have that security. He's always wondering. But what about a son? A son. He looks and goes, that's my father. He's not worried about his father saying, you're no longer my son. A son doesn't work in order to uh, try to earn his father's favor. A son's not working going, oh, if I mess up, my dad is going to say I'm not his son anymore. Do you see the difference? The difference between a servant and a son, there's a huge difference here. And the question for us is, how do we relate to God? Do we relate to God more as a servant or as a son and daughter? Going, God, I know I'm secure with you. You're my father. You've saved me. You've redeemed me. It's based on Jesus. It's based on him, not based on what I do. But a good son who loves his father, guess what he wants to do? He wants to please his father. So while we say works do not save, and we'll say that over and over again. Don't misunderstand. Works don't save. Works flow from a son or daughter who loves their father. I love my father. I want to honor him. I want to, I want to bring glory to him. I want to do things that other people can see how wonderful he is. There's a big difference. And I think many people struggle with this, find themselves operating with God more like they are servants of God than they are sons. And a son may serve at times, but he doesn't do so out of fear of messing up or not being good enough. He does so because he wants to honor his father. Second thing we see in verses 8 through 11, God sent forth his son that you might know God, that you would know him. In verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, 
You were enslaved to those that by nature were not God. Before you knew God, you were in slavery to things that were not God. You know how to tell what you're in slavery to? You know how to tell what, what you truly love? One, one of the ways you can tell what you truly love is what do you give attention to? Attention communicates love for most people. What do you give attention to? What do you spend time on? What are you thinking about? I can tell you for many, it's, many of us, it's, we start to love our phones. And give it more attention than we do other people. We start to love screens. We start to love um, our own fame, our own name. There's all sorts of things we can give more attention to than we do God Almighty. Now, he, he steps in here and says, Formerly you were enslaved to things that by nature were not God. I remember years ago I was in South Asia, and I went to a Buddhist temple. I was just visiting with some people, but I was shocked by the darkness of people worshiping stones and rocks and burning incense before these false gods. And we look at that and we think, well, I would never do that. Our hearts are prone to find idols. Our hearts are prone to worship, to give affection towards something that is not God. Jesus says this, or hang on, Paul says this, and then I'll tell you what Jesus says. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you go backwards? He's saying, hey, you know God, and God knows you, and you're going back and living like you don't know God anymore. That would describe some of us here today. You know God, but you're going back and living like you don't. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty work, miracles in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are going to be some. It's saying at the end, there's going to be some who will stand forward and go, Hey, I did works in the name of Jesus. I served in the name of Jesus. I did mighty things in the name of Jesus. And he's going to say, I never knew you. That's a hard passage. I never knew you. He says, not only do we know God, but we're known by God. Now, God knows all things. But God wants to know you. Where you know Him, He knows you. Where you have that relationship. Now, last night I was... Um, Watched a little bit of a World Cup game. I know many of you here probably, uh, that's probably your, your sport is football. That's all right. My, my team's gone now, so, uh, so that's okay. We're, we're, we're very, um, people from the United States are very poor football fans. But I'll tell you the sport I like. This is my favorite sport to watch, the one I enjoy the most, and that's basketball. I've always enjoyed watching basketball. And growing up, my favorite player to watch. Now, many of you know who this is. Some of you may not. was a man named Michael Jordan. He was world famous. 
And, and I can tell you quite a bit about Michael Jordan. I know that when he tried out for the basketball team as a sophomore, he got cut. He didn't make it. He came back. That was in grade 10. He didn't make it. He came back in grade 11 and 12 and made it as a first-year student at the University of North Carolina. He led the team to a national title. He would go on to play in Chicago. He'd win the best rookie of the year, meaning first-year player. He would win five Most Valuable Player awards. He'd win six uh, world championships. Most people today still believe, and I believe this, that he's the best player to ever live. I know quite a bit about Michael Jordan. I know he's from North Carolina. I know, I know if, if I saw Michael Jordan walking down the street, I would know it was him. I would recognize him. And th think if I went up to him and said, Hey, Michael, so good to see you. You know, I was watching the game when I was a kid, and I remember when y'all were playing Cleveland, and you hit a shot to give you your first playoff victory. What do you think he would say to me? He'd be like, well, well, great. Good to see you, Steve. Why don't you come have lunch with me? He would be going, hey, security, can somebody get, somebody get this guy away from me? I don't know him. See, I could know a lot about Michael Jordan, right? But if I walk up to Michael Jordan, he's not going, hey, Steve. He's looking, going, I don't know your name. I've never seen you before in my life. I don't know you. I have no knowledge of you. While all analogies have breakdowns, you may know a lot about God. You may have a lot of information up here in your head about who He is. You may be able to quote some Bible verses. You may know the Bible stories. You may come to church regularly. You may serve. You may give. You may do all those things. None of those mean that you know God. None of those guarantee that you know God at all. No, it's only as we're adopted in as children that we know who God is. God wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's why the Son came. He came to adopt you, but then He came that you could be a child who knows His Father who talks to his Father, who hears from the Father through the Word. God came that you would know him. Last thing we see here, starting in verse 12. God sent forth his Son that you reflect his Son. God sent forth his Son, and again, these are the, I've got three points, they're in your, in your bulletin. God sent forth his Son that you reflect his his son to the world. So God sent forth his son to adopt you. God sent forth his son that you would be known by God. And God sent forth his son so that you can reflect his son to the world. Now, Paul throughout the book of Galatians has been very direct. Some would say he's been very harsh. He's like an upset father who's not speaking very kindly. He's upset that they've left the gospel and he wants them to know, hey, you've abandoned the one thing you can't abandon. He wants to make sure they understand that. But now, Paul begins to speak of them in loving terms. Terms of endearment. Like a father to a child. 
Now, a father who loves their children will correct his children, right? Dads, moms. If you're a parent who's seeking what's best for your kids, you have to correct them at times, right? And sometimes your tone may not be the best. Paul's going to address that, but here's what he says. Brothers, verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am, for I become as you are. He's saying, hey, though I'm Jewish, I've set down all those rights. I'm an adopted child, just like any Gentile who's adopted in as well. Paul's going back to his, um, his care and love for the Galatians. He's going to speak of a few things. Paul was traveling through the area of Galatia, and he had to stop because of a bodily element. Paul had something going on in his body that caused him to have to get treatment. We don't know what it is. Paul said he prayed three times for the thorn to be removed. Here he says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. In other places he says, look at what large letters I write with. It's very obvious Paul had an eyesight issue. His letters, he dictated them often to scribes who would write them out. And at the end he'd say, look at I'm writing myself. So Paul had some physical issues. And just a side note. Paul had deep faith. And yet God never healed him of these physical issues he had. Now, do we believe God can still heal? Absolutely, He's God. Do we believe it's a command performance based on how much faith we have? No, it's based on Christ. It's based on faith in Christ. Christ is the one who does it, and He doesn't always do it because we look at Paul and go, if God was going to heal anybody, He would have healed Paul, you'd think. Paul had more faith probably than any of us in this room. And yet he still had these elements. God used him for his glory. God used him to stop and put him in Galatia. And while Paul was there being treated, he preached the gospel to this Galatian church. Paul's being more personal here. He's speaking in caring terms. He says, um, questions. He says, what then has become of the blessing you felt? He says later, have I become an enemy telling you the truth? He calls them his little children. Paul loves the Galatians. This is some of, actually this section, many have said this is some of Paul's most compassionate, tender words that he speaks to any church. In the midst of this church that's gone deeply astray on understanding the gospel, Paul speaks to them lovingly here. Paul ends with this. I like in verse 20. I feel this one personally. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. Paul's saying, hey, I'm writing to you. I just wish I could be with you and talk to you face to face. Have you ever felt that way? I tell you, I've sent an email or a text, and I, as soon as it goes out, I'll be like, oh, can I get that back? Well, was that a little too harsh? I wish I could just sit with the person and let them know, hey, I, I love you, I care about you, but there's something we've got to talk about. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, if my tone sounds harsh, I love you. I care about you. I care about you so much, I don't want you see going to a gospel that's no gospel at all. I wish I could be with you 
so you could see and feel the emotion of what I'm feeling. That's what Paul wants for this church. So three things we see today. God sent forth His Son. One, that you would be adopted in as a child. Question for us. Are you living more like a child of God or more like a servant, more like a slave? Do you realize you're secure with Him if you trusted Him? Or are you more concerned that like, oh, if I mess up, do you realize that your adoption is secure when you've trusted Christ? He came that we might know Him and be known by Him. Do you live with the God in a way that you go, I know you. You know me. We talk. We commune. I hear from you in your word. I gather with your people. God, I want to know you. And third, do you reflect God to others? Do people see God's goodness shining through you? Paul says, hey, I'm an example, not because I'm so great. Paul's going, I'm an example because God has changed me. That's who we're to be. Church, I pray that we would know these truths and that we would live in light of them. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sent forth your son. Uh, I, I love this time of year where we reflect that you sent forth your son. You yourself, you took on flesh to came and rescue us. You came to adopt us as sons. You came to know us and that we might know you. And you came that we might be an example to others, that we might reflect the glory of God as a people that have been redeemed by you. So Lord, we pray that as we take communion, we commune with you, a God who wants to know us. We talk with you and we rejoice in the fact that we are saved and redeemed. And Lord, if there's any here today, there's some maybe that are wondering if they've ever trusted you. I pray that they would know you're enough. Lord, there's some here today who've trusted in works. They may be redeemed, but they're still trusting in works more than you. I pray that you'd set them free from that and let them know they're a child of yours. Lord, if there's some here who've never trusted you, may today be the day of salvation that they know that you've adopted them in. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.